Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this episode. No Starch Press has offered a discount code as part of this episode. Listeners can use the code GEEKERY30, that's G-E-E-K-E-R-Y-3-0, for 30% off racket programming the fun way until the end of the year. If you know any conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all of those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have James Stelly. James, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? As you said, my name is James Stelly. I'm an old programmer from years ago. My first computer was actually an analog computer I built in high school back in the 60s. So that'll give you some idea how old I am. But it was, uh, it was a computer that was made out of potentiometers, batteries, and a voltmeter. So it was very primitive, but I called it SAD-SAM, and that was an acronym that uh, described what it did. So it, SAD was subtract, subtraction, addition, division, and SAM was square rooting and multiplication. So that was my first computer, and I've dabbled in a lot of programming languages for various reasons. In college, I've programmed in Fortran and C++ mainly. Professionally, I actually started out on the mainframe. I worked at ExxonMobil full-time for 36 years, and then I retired 10 years ago, and I worked part-time at ExxonMobil for the remainder of that time. So I'm still doing a little part-time work for them. When I was working in the mainframe, we used some database languages. We had two mainframe systems. One was called MVS, which stands for Multiple Virtual Systems. That is mainly a batch programming environment. So uh, we used a programming language called Focus, which is a, mainly a database programming language where you can uh, program various operations using databases on batch files. There was another system called VM, Virtual Machine, and that one was a little bit more interactive. That one used a programming language, another database programming language called Nomad. Nomad did allow you to create screens that you could use on a terminal that looked a lot similar to Windows today, except you only had basically one window where the form was, and you could interactively enter information back and forth that way. We eventually migrated to desktop computers, and at that point, we used, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, language, but I didn't use that one long. It actually had some C interfaces, but mainly we use Access and SQL Server to develop business line applications. So I did that a good length of time. I did some project management. We had a number of projects that we ran in the IT department. But parallel to that, my hobby interests were also computer-oriented. I'm kind of a nerd, but... Um, I've programmed in a wide variety of things. I don't know if you've heard of Forth. It's what's called a threaded interpretive language. And uh, I've used C++. I've used C, 
Python, APL, <laughs> J. There's a programming language called J, F Sharp, C Sharp, Java, JavaScript. I've probably played with just about anything you can name. <laughs> Uh, so what, what led me to the uh, racket book, though, because of my interest in exploring programming languages, was just I was looking at Scheme initially. And, you know, as you keep looking at Scheme, eventually you're going to run across racket. So racket is sort of like a, a supercharged version of Scheme. And uh, racket has a lot of capabilities that it's sort of a Swiss army knife. It has just about any feature you can name. So in the process of exploring that, I was trying to make notes while I was trying to learn it. But it just so happened during that time, I was also looking at LaTeX, the document processing language. So I wanted to try to learn that at the same time I was learning Racket. So that eventually evolved into the book. So as I learned things about Racket and I was documenting that using LaTeX, that pretty much caused the book to write itself almost. So I just, I was trying to exercise Racket to see what all it was capable of. And, you know, as I explored different areas, that became different parts of the book. So that's kind of what led me to where we are today with the Racket programming book. Now, it almost sounds like it could go off on a whole excursion into you building a whole analog computer, but we'll have to save that for another time, possibly. You've played with a bunch of stuff, it sounds like, all the way from batch processing to mainframe and on the mainframes to standard desktop stuff to Access and SQL Server to a bunch of languages on playing. Was Scheme and Racket kind of your first exposure to some of the functional programming languages, or had you played with other ones, or was there exposure through some of the Python or some of the other languages where you kind of got the first hint of stuff? Well, actually, before I even knew about Racket, I found, because I'm a big fan of the Visual Studio IDE, so as you may know, F-sharp is one of the .NET languages, so I actually... That, uh, my first exposure to a, and even F-sharp is not strictly like Haskell. <laughs> it's not strictly a functional language. It's strongly oriented in that way. So I started playing with F-sharp and then seeing what I could do with it. And the thing, nice thing about it is it sort of integrates fairly well with the other .NET languages. So you can do some things in C-sharp and you can build libraries in F-sharp that would interface with them. So it makes it pretty easy to uh, build applications that you can leverage the best features of both of those things. So F-sharp is really the first one that I had that had a heavy functional orientation. And I did .NET using some VB.NET, but mostly C-sharp at that point. And I remember when F-sharp was coming along, some of C-sharp at that time still had the link, the language integrated queries, which kind of stole those functional programming ideas they kind of positioned was like, hey, if you're coming from SQL, you'll recognize some of this stuff versus, hey, here's some functional programming concepts. But as you dug into F-sharp, what was that like? I know there's the, it leans heavily towards functional programming. How did that first bite into understanding functional programming come? I was just sort of intrigued by the, the way you can code things in F-sharp because, you know, they have currying where you can have partial function application. 
they have the pipeline operator where you, you can start with a piece of data, you can feed it into a whole stream of functions and have that just kind of flow through the pipeline and then get the results out the back end. So that was pretty interesting to me. So uh, yeah, I like playing with that and uh, seeing what, where I could go with it as far as developing different applications. Were there any things that, as you started playing with F-sharp, that kind of hit your, this is weird, this is different, it takes me a while to get used to it. I know some of the candidates are the vastly different type system that you get from a lot of programming languages because it leads more towards the ML side and Haskell side. We're like, okay, this is actually, like I thought I had types before when I was doing Java or C, but I realize the extent of full types. And then there's the immutability and some of these hurdles people talk about of just trying to understand functional programming the first time. You mentioned the pipeline and seeing that pipeline operation kind of stuff in F-sharp. Was there still like, I see some stuff, but there's these hurdles to get, or were you kind of excited about the hurdles or not even really encountering the hurdles based off the experience you'd done playing with a bunch of other languages? I didn't actually think of it as hurdles. I actually had a couple of good books that kind of made it easy to uh, learn the language. And the other thing about F-sharp is since it is a, a .NET language, you still have access to all of the data structures and components that are part of that environment. So you don't lose any of the kind of traditional data structures that you'd have in uh, any language. And uh, F-sharp really doesn't introduce a lot of new data structures. Now they do, their list object is a little bit different than the .NET list. And uh, that's one of the places where things don't actually transition very smoothly. There are some native F-sharp types that while it's possible to interact with the with those with C-sharp, you have to kind of jump through some hurdles to get from one side to the other. But the actual learning process, I thought, was fairly smooth as far as learning the different paradigms that F-sharp introduced. Because you can kind of start with what you know and then work your way into what you don't know. And was this, you were just doing F-sharp, I'm assuming, on your own because you're playing with these languages, but did you have the .NET background? Is that one of the things that led you to F-sharp? So you're playing well, with the .NET environment and didn't just decide to peek in there? or? Yes. So basically, I had started with C-sharp as far as .NET was concerned, and I had been playing with that for quite a while before I actually tried to use F-sharp. Sometimes people pick up a language, just completely different platform, just because it's a completely different platform, or I've seen people take the same platform kind of thing. So Java people lean to Clojure or Scala, .NET people go to F-sharp sometimes. So I wasn't sure if that was a, we're going to start fresh from scratch, or we're going to just kind of take everything around. It was a transition. So, you know, F-sharp, like I said, I'm a I'm an experimenter, so I with languages. I just like exploring different ones. So uh, I did start with C-sharp. And then, of course, if you do a lot of work in the .NET environment and the Microsoft's infrastructure, you're going to run across these things. I did, in the process of learning about functional language, start exploring Haskell. I found Haskell interesting <laughs> as far as what you can do. It's, I mean, you can actually use operators to combine functions in some very clever ways in Haskell. I find it interesting from a, just from a interesting language perspective, but from a practical standpoint, I was a little put off by it. It forces you into doing things a certain way. And I guess because I'm old, you know, I, 
I was used to uh, at least having the option of doing mutable things and changing things. So as you know, Haskell is really, it kind of goes out of its way to keep you from doing that type of thing. So uh, I started to kind of set Haskell aside and focused on other things, which is one of the reasons I kind of like Racket because it has a lot of the functional elements to it, but it doesn't confine you to doing things a certain way. So you can still do imperative programming. It even has ways you can do logic programming. So it has a lot of paradigms you can mix and match if that works better for your uh, application. And before we dig into Racket, you mentioned doing Haskell. So I want to touch on that because I've heard some people on the podcast have said something similar, but they've come away and said, I don't know that I like being constrained that, but I did enjoy learning it because it actually highlighted how far you can go down that route of immutability and keeping everything pure and essentially reinforcing the lesson that you might kind of hear in some of these other languages where it's like, can you isolate your side effects when you hear about people talking about unit testing and things like that? It's like, okay, if it's going to do something on the side and side effects, like if you're going to talk to the database, try and get the database stuff out. Was there any takeaways from your brief time in Haskell when you're like, okay, I'm not necessarily going to do this full time. It's interesting ideas, but did you have any interesting takeaway lessons that you realize you kept from your experimentation with Haskell? Yes. I mean, Haskell, uh, the whole philosophy that it introduces a kind of keeping things separate. So you clearly identify the things that are going to change and the things that that won't. So it, it was good from that standpoint. And the other thing I found interesting, it's just, it's almost like working, working puzzles. So like, if you like doing recreational math puzzles, just understand the language and some of the things you can do with it. It's pretty intriguing. I just, I may actually go back to it at some point and kind of explore it a little bit more just from an intellectual perspective. But it does have a lot to offer, I think, as far as uh, methodologies and, and how you manage your data. And I'm asking because it's always interesting to see the paths and takeaways people take as they start playing with different languages, especially when you're talking about starting with F sharp and then you're going to Haskell, which puts you even deeper into the side of here's a strongly typed functional programming language and Haskell is going to put purity on top of that. And then you also pick on from almost the opposite spectrum, which is a scheme and a list, which is like, nope, it's dynamic. There's a whole bunch of openness here because we even got macros. So the code that you're writing and you're reading may not be anywhere close to the code that you're actually running because of the macro system, depending on what kind of macros you use. So what prompted that switch from going down or staying more on the type system side and going more into the dynamic side? Well, you know, even though Racket is fundamentally dynamic, for me personally, I like type languages better. With a type language, you have fewer surprises, I guess is one way of putting it. Now, I will say, though, that even Racket, because of its versatility, they actually have a language because uh, Racket allows you to define different languages within their environment. They actually have something called Type Racket, which I haven't used, by the way, but even you know the people that are in the dynamic language camp recognize that there are some advantages to having type data supported by the language. Yeah, and I guess I should clarify when I say typed, I mean more aesthetically typed versus dynamically typed because 
Racket is still a strongly typed language compared to JavaScript, which does a lot of coercion and things on your behalf. But what prompted that switch from the static types and playing with static types if you're doing Java and C sharp and going to F sharp and playing a little bit of Haskell to going something more dynamic along the lines of, because you mentioned you did Python too. Uh, Was there just a jump to see the opposite side of the spectrum? Was there something specifically appealing about the scheme that started getting you to look into schemes and lists? What really drew me to Racket was mainly the the versatility of the environment because, I mean, it just has everything in it. If, If you're interested in any type of programming paradigm, any type of uh, domain-specific languages, although even that sort of functional idea. But it has just a a whole slew of different things you can do with it. So that was the draw for Racket, not not specifically because of the capabilities of the language itself. So as you start getting into Racket, which of those things did you find that you were kind of reaching for right away? It is a broad swath. I keep going in and out of how to design programs, which is using Dr. Scheme, the predecessor, Racket, and they're like, oh, we're going to add this stuff on, and like we've got this other stuff, and here's the image library that we're going to pull in so you can deal with images and things like that. What were some of those first things that you were wanting, or maybe it's the same kind of things you do whenever you pick up any language, what were some of the first problems you were tackling that made Racket seem really interesting that you were looking at the versatility of Racket for? Well, one thing I liked about Racket was its interactivity. So when you open up Dr. Racket, you get a, a screen that's got a, the top part that has the, the editor, and then there's a REPL section down at the bottom where you can type in commands and get the answer. So those two things make it very easy to do things kind of in an interactive way. So you can write some code at the top and uh, compile your function and call it immediately on the command line. and and get the answer. So you can very quickly test out ideas and uh, get a result. The other nice thing about that command line is, unlike a lot of command lines, you can actually execute functions and get a visual result in the form of a chart or a drawing or just about anything. So it's very flexible as far as the types of output you can get. You kind of touched on what prompted the book and the fact you were learning Racket and you were learning LaTeX at the same time and putting that stuff together. But as you put it together, just again, for anybody who hasn't seen the book, it's Racket Programming the Fun Way, and the subtitle is From Strings to Turing Machines. So mm-hmm. that's a bit of a difference there from learning strings and functions and programming and just doing some basic stuff to going all the way to like, hey, we're going to go to automata theory and start implementing Turing machines and looking at what automata does. What was your approach to just picking up Racket from the beginning? Was there anything specific you were wanting to go in and push against Racket with specifically? Or was it just like, hey, I got a bunch of just different problems I might see and just see how it works on each of these different kinds of things? Well, they kind of advertise a Swiss Army knife. They don't call it that on the website. But I mean, that's that's sort of the idea and that, that you can do anything with this language. So my idea when I started exploring it, knowing that is I wanted to see how far you could push it. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, I didn't want to get too deep into the weed. So it, the book is sort of, let's see what we can do with racket and let's push it as far as we can, but not make it really too technical where 
people just don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> so, but there's a lot of interesting ideas in math and computer science that I think people with even a modest amount of background can grasp. And then you can explore that with Racket in a very interactive way that, you know, you don't have to have a lot of preparation to get meaningful results. So you mentioned pushing it and seeing what it was. Was there anything that you were pushing it, even though, or that you may have pushed in when you were learning Racket and saying, how far can I go? How, like, if this really is a Swiss Army knife, or this is a giant tool chest of tools, where all these different languages are actually just in the different compartments, and this is more of a whole environment like they advertise it. Was there anything that you were pushing to see how far you could push and break it, even if it was like, this isn't going into the book, once you realize there was books, but like, I've got all this stuff about like, I went down the rabbit hole and just along those lines that you were just impressed with about the way you could push it? Well, yeah, I was impressed by what you could push it because there was a stretch of time where I played with Prologue, uh, which is programming and logic. There's a very good book by Clarkson and Mellish that kind of introduces you to it. So a new racket had some logic programming capabilities. So I said, well, let's see what you can do with it. So there's a chapter in the book that sort of explores that. And it turns out there's very good support for logic programming. You know, there's a little bit of, I guess, overhead from a syntax perspective that you have to kind of get through. But from a purely semantic standpoint, you can define clauses and that type of thing that works pretty much similar to what you'd be able to do in Prologue. And they, the translation from one to the other is fairly straightforward. So that's just an example of one of the things that you wouldn't expect out of a language in that you can do the sort of declarative programming that uh, you wouldn't normally be able to do in an imperative programming language. Because we're in a list, did you go down the macro route yourself and start, or even further down the macro route into the, hey, this is Racket, beyond macros, we've got this whole language functionality where we can actually redefine other things and essentially build a whole new DSL on top of this stuff. How far down that rabbit hole did you go when you were exploring Racket? I didn't. <laughs> so ah. it, there's, there's virtually nothing in the book about macros. So it's, it's so not explicitly. So there's macros clearly behind the scenes and some of the things that are explained in the book, but there's really nothing about macro programming within the book explicitly. Did you go down that rabbit hole yourself and just to see what it was like to write a new DSL in it, or you didn't ever go that far? Not as far as defining a domain-specific language. Back when I had looked at Scheme a little bit, I had just sort of explored that a bit, but not in any depth. I was looking at the index and some of the stuff and looking at the overview, but I wasn't sure how much of the book covered what you played with and experimented with versus how much of the stuff you're like, well, this could actually be... Like, I have a whole bunch of notes, but let's condense the book down into these topics because that makes it actually easier to focus without going over the whole giant language of everything else, even though I might have played with it. And turning it from probably a couple hundred page book to a giant thousand page tome kind of thing. So wasn't sure that delineation between what you managed to play with versus what you managed to be able to fit into a book. I guess if, you know, if I had wanted to... Uh expand on some of the topics macros certainly would have uh, provided an opportunity to do a lot more things especially with some of the automata things like in the uh, last chapter where we're defining language structures and that type of thing and uh, we actually 
in the that last chapter is actually defining a language. So that's sort of a pretty good area where you'd be able to leverage macros to a, a pretty good extent. I didn't really want to get too much into that because I thought that just having to explain state machines and regular expressions and all of that, and at the same time explain the macro capabilities would have been a little bit too much to introduce right off. Now, in hindsight, probably it would have been interesting to have like another chapter that says you can do the same thing, but easier if you use macros and some of the built-in language capabilities that, that Racket offers. But I didn't go that far. So where do you fit on Racket now? So you say you're still playing with a bunch of languages. Is Racket still on your list of the languages now? Is that something you think is going to be kind of this toy go-to language or you pull out for whenever you need to get your tool set up kind of thing? Where's your relationship to the Racket now after you finish the book? Well, I've actually started working on a, something completely different right now. I'm actually building a CNC machine, but that's that's sort of uh, something come completely out of the realm of, although there is this G-code stuff you have to master, it's a programming language. So I'm, I'm kind of focusing on that now. However, I still plan to go back to Racket at some point. It's just that, you know, I've kind of, because of my nature, where I kind of jump from one thing to the other, right now I'm that I'm that focused on it. You never know. It might be you get tired of the decode, writing the decode language and decide you're just going to program a DSL in Racket so you can just have Racket take care of that integration for you. Well, you know, it's interesting. The code is called G-code because uh, a lot of the code start with the letter G. But what's interesting is for this CNC machine, I'm actually using uh, something called Gerbil. It's G-R-B-L. It's, a, it's an acronym. But the machine I'm building uses an Arduino, which is a very low-power machine. G-code has a lot of capabilities that you can't use with Gerbil because it's very it's a subset. Some of that is, is uh, you can actually have subroutines that Gerbil doesn't support. So what you could do in Scheme is do exactly what you're saying is kind of build, build a domain-specific language that if you wanted to create some type of object that you would send to the machine, you could design that mathematically, I guess, in scheme and then have it do that translation for you where it would create the G code. It sort of expand out what you would uh, normally use a uh, subroutine for in the CNC machine. But that's down the road. (laughs) So as you kind of pick up these languages, you picked up F sharp, you did a little bit in Haskell, you've picked up scheme through racket and you've done this stuff. You've seen these different languages. You said you are still working part-time. How do you find that all these languages that you're playing with are pulling you in a different direction and feeding back into your, I was going to use day-to-day work, but your part-time pay work that you're doing? How are you finding that all these things from the functional side are feeding back into the way you think about problems and integrate solutions in the work you do that's not the play work necessarily well of course you always learn things that you can you know apply elsewhere the thing about my day job i'll call it even though it's part-time now is the type of work i do there is fairly structured so it's a lot of it's dealing with SQL Server and data backends and different data entry forms, record keeping, and that type of thing. So 
the unfortunate thing about that is it doesn't really afford you a lot of flexibility as far as your approach to building applications. You really don't get an opportunity to do a lot of creative stuff that you might like to do otherwise. Yeah, I just wasn't sure because I know in my experience, it's like once you see Haskell, there are certain things which you kind of can't unsee. You're like, oh, I got this impure stuff here. Or once you go down the map fill to reduce route fairly heavily or the fold route, you start to see those things everywhere or list comprehensions or things like that and start replacing the for loops. I wasn't sure if there's anything that Rackethead kind of essentially broke your brain on. And now you're like, well, now that I've seen Racket, I know I necessarily can't do this in what I'm doing, but it's changing the way I think about it. So maybe I'm going to hedge a little bit that way when I might not have, or just potentially even made your day job a little bit more painful because you're like, okay, I've seen other ways to do this. And now I'm going back and doing something else. I'll use an example of, I mentioned I did C sharp. We were on C sharp 3.0. I think it got to four was in preview. And then I had to jump back into Java. And at that point, Java was still like, and this is still Java 1.0. I think it might have been maybe 1.4 or 1.5 is what they were on. And just seeing that difference, you're like, this feels like I'm jumping back almost 10 years ago to what I was doing kind of thing. Is there anything that Racket has really influenced the way you think about the way you you think, even if you can't necessarily directly apply that day to day? Well, I would love to have been able to use some of the things I learned with Racket. But again, the environment I, I'm in at work, it really just doesn't afford you the opportunity to employ those techniques. It's unfortunate. I mean, I'll go around kicking myself because I can't, I can't do those things. But you know, it, it would be nice to be able to, you know, use mapping and apply and and uh, you know all that kind of stuff. But the language I'm using, which is Visual Basic, I mean, it and it's an old <laughs> Visual Basic. It's it just doesn't afford you the opportunity to employ those type of constructs. Makes sense. And again, it's not that you can do it everywhere. But I just wasn't sure if there was any just kind of like, oh, yeah, like this has definitely changed the way I, I guess, my first gut of thinking through the problem versus something else. It sounds like you haven't really picked up too many other languages after Racket to know if that approach changed. So that's kind of where I was getting through with that. So you cover quite a few different topics in the book looking at the index because, you, as we mentioned, you cover logic programming, you covered automata theory. Were there any topics that... I guess, excited you to kind of help bring to the public and thought that Racket made, again, I'm sure they're, if they're all in the book, they all excited you to some extent, but the way that say, like, if I'm going to approach this problem, I might approach a logic programming thing, or I might approach a Tomlin, and I can approach that in any language, but is there anything that kind of was exciting in the way that says, wow, Racket makes it really nice to approach this and introduce those to people without overwhelming someone in the nitty-gritty details that you might have to do in another language? Was there any pleasant surprises or things that kind of excited you about that as you're figuring out all these topics, even on your own, or prepping them for the book when you're actually trying to figure out, like, okay, so I learned how to do this in Racket, but I already knew, say, automata theory. 
But now that I try to explain somebody atomic theory or logic programming or whatever it is, graph theory or whatever else is in the book, that racket seemed to make it really nice and straightforward and help almost get out of your way to help teach those concepts. Well, I think the main one that really jumped out at me was the logic programming. Because if you look at some of the applications in that chapter, they're all really just recreational problems. But the thing you can do there is, you know, the declarative nature of logic programming. It's just something you can't do in other languages. I mean, it's just probably possible in a way. But you can't really just say, specify the parameters of the problem and then have it spit out an answer. I mean, it's almost that simple. So that's sort of the biggest one. I guess one of the other sections that was sort of a pretty interesting to use it is where uh, the chapter on searching for answers. So there was, uh, again, these are more recreational problems, but doing search algorithms and that type of thing, of course, those use a lot of recursion, but I think Racket lends itself fairly well to solving those type of problems where you have to kind of go down a game tree and, and look for answers and that type of thing. Aside from the book, you're playing with Racket, you're trying to sell Racket to somebody. What are those points about Racket that you found really makes the sale for why someone should pick up Racket? So it's one thing to go look at a book and see a whole bunch of books on the thing and say, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of languages. This book looks interesting and it's got some interesting topics, it looks like. But if you're going to pitch Racket to someone, what, what do you say about pitching Racket? For someone else who's going to be like, hey, if you encounter a coworker who's really excited about picking up languages, what is it about Racket that would cause you to suggest Racket that you've taken away from that says, hey, if you're going to experiment with a language, why look into Racket? Well, I would say if you're the kind of person that, unlike me, who's kind of all over the place with languages, if you're saying, I want to focus on a language that, that I can get the most mileage out of and do a lot of different things, then Racket is the language you want to use because it has a ton of libraries. If you want to do number theory, if you want to do data analysis, if you want to do domain-specific languages, if you want to, if you want to do just about anything, you can probably get a library that would support it very well. The other thing is, like I mentioned before, the interactive nature of it. You can create your little functions in the top and execute them on the command line. You can create graphs very easily. One of the nice features they have in the uh, editor is their syntax highlighting. And one of the things that's sort of interesting I've never seen in an environment before is if you hover over a variable, it will actually draw arrows to the other places that variable is being used at. I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing. So. <laughs> It's uh, it's just a fun environment to even play in. It's it's fun. It's robust. It has a lot of features. You can do near anything you want in it. I would encourage anybody that's interested in programming to take a look at it. What's the audience for the book? As we come back to the book for a minute, you saw this idea. This is it doesn't matter what it is. What level of experience is your book presuming when you're trying to sell these people? Because you said you wanted to try and stay out as some of the details as much as possible and not get burned down with like a bunch of this mathy stuff on like automata theory. What level should someone be going? Like, is this something you could give a teenager who's trying to go program and get them starting out? Is this more you're looking at this book for 
someone who's already done some stuff and played with it and just trying to sell this as like, hey, here's another reason to go check out Racket. If you haven't already peeked at it, here's a book that'll help you get exposure to it and see what's cool about it. Where do you find the audiences that you would like to reach to with the book? The ideal audience would probably be someone who's had a couple of math classes, at least maybe one year of algebra <laughs> and uh, maybe even some trig, but that's not necessarily a necessity. But anyway, a little bit of sophistication, not a lot. And you don't necessarily even have to have had any programming language exposure because the book basically kind of walks you through from a very basic introduction where you're just basically adding things. So it kind of takes a very gentle start and works your way up to some of these other topics. So I think, like I said, if you have just a little bit of math, not a lot, and at least an interest in kind of recreational math problems, then I, I think that would sort of be the, the audience for the book. I mean, it's not written for a mathematician or somebody that's got a, a lot of experience with programming. They might read it just out of idle interest, but I think you know, people who are interested in recreational math and have a little bit of math background would, would probably be a good, good audience to uh, take a look at the book. And then you got Matthew Flatt to be your technical reviewer. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you wound up reaching out to him? Was, how did that grow to get someone that deep into the Racket community to be your technical reviewer for Racket? I have to thank the editors at No Starch for uh, making that happen. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, Matt, he's one of the developers, if not one of the main uh, developers of Racket. So, uh, it was very fortuitous that he was willing to look at my book and kind of go through it and, and uh, make sure everything was ship shape. And when you get someone that deep into Racket, did you get a lot of, this is good, this is technically right, and here's a better way to do this? Or, like, was there a lot of that feedback of, this is a bit more idiomatic, this is a bit more, or there's this other stuff in Racket, and you were able to, how much of that was learning first time putting this Racket book together in your notes, as you said, that said, hey, I think I have a book here. And then how much of the learning was getting Matthew Flat to come back and edit your book and tell you what it's like to have that feedback from a Racket perspective, I guess, did you get a lot of good feedback at the, hey, here's a bunch of better ways that to do this from someone with the Racket experience? Was there, what was that balance like? Well, it was a little of both. Of course, you know, he, you know, he was very good at spotting technical issues. And, as, you know, as far as well as things that needed to be corrected, he did have other suggestions about, well, you could do things this way uh, as opposed to the way I did it. I had this is probably not the best example, but uh, I had some code in there that was reading some data files. And the syntax I was using would have worked in Windows, but it wouldn't have worked in other environments. So he said, well, you know, you can do this in a, in a more generic way that works for all the systems. So he had pointed out, you know, those types of things where, you know, this will work, but this is a better way of doing it. So, you know, there was a lot of feedback that way. So he was a very valuable resource to getting the book to be better than it would have been otherwise. I've had him on the podcast, but it's one of the reasons I enjoy doing this podcast is to hear all those little tips and tricks that when you're just dabbling across a bunch of languages, you may not realize and come across, but always interesting to have somebody who's deep in it because they can say something just casually offhand and you and you don't realize how simple yet profound that that statement was. So I wasn't sure 
how many of those things you managed to get when he was doing your, the technical review of your book. Yeah, he had quite a few suggestions. So it, like I say in the, the acknowledgments, he's responsible for a lot of the good things and the, the bad stuff is probably all, all on me. So, so yeah, that's, that's about the, the best way I could put it. So we covered quite a bit and we're coming up on time. Is there anything that we haven't talked about? Anything you want to make known to people that we think we should cover before we start wrapping up? Not really. I mean, uh, you know, we kind of touched on just about everything. I will say the book is, it'll walk you through the introductory stuff and it sort of touches on a lot of the, the basic functionality as far as building GUIs and analyzing data and that type of thing. But the main thing I would say is, even given everything in the book, that's really just the tip of the iceberg for what you can do with Racket, because there is just a whole lot of stuff that you can do that's not even in the book. So what I would say is, you know, if you've read the book and gone through the whole thing, don't think that that's everything. Go to the website and some of the other resources that are available for Racket and find out some of the other stuff you can do, because there's a lot of other neat things you can do with it that, uh, like I said, we just barely touched on in the book. Do you have any other things that you want to let people know about? Not sure if you've got any other community involvement, if you've got anything else besides the book going on that you want to let people know, or just want to call to people's attention before we let you go. Not offhand. I will say, you know, if you are working through the book, I didn't mention it in the book, but the, the longer bits of code in the book are available on the No Starch website. So if you want to download that, it's available. Do you have a presence online? Uh, I don't know if you're doing any promotions or just talking about the book or anything else. Do you have a presence online where people can follow along or just see what else you might be picking up? Follow your If you make updates about your CNC machine or any other languages that you're doing, do you have anything that people who want to find out more about you could go to find out more? Unfortunately, I, I don't have a social media presence of any kind. So. At this time, I would say no. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that you didn't have a social media account or LinkedIn account or blog or something that you do and you keep updated where you share your learnings that we'd be remiss if we didn't get added to the show notes. So just wanted to follow up on that. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, James, for taking your time to join me today. And it's a pleasure talking with you. It sounds like this book should be making its way just based off our conversation, this book has made its way closer to the top of the two read pile. It was already close up there, but I think it's going to probably be one of the next technical books I pick up just because the interesting projects you have in there that we've talked about and just seeing how Racket approaches it. But it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking your time to join me today. You're very welcome. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.